welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest today is Francis Robb, author of Shot in Alabama, A History of Photography, 1839-1941, to and a list of photographers, published by University of Alabama Press in 2016. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for asking me. Why do you think that the history of Alabama photography is important enough to justify a book like Shot in Alabama? We're becoming a visual culture, and as we do, we need to know more about the history of our visual culture, and this is part of the issue. So tell us about the book. I got started on the book in the early 1990s, and I've worked on it ever since, but only in little patches and pieces. I wrote it because I was curious about what Alabama photographs actually looked like, and who made them, and what did people think about them after they saw their pictures, and how did the meanings of them change over time. Those were things that interested me. It wasn't so much that the subject was important as that it was important to me. Ah, but you have since discovered that it might be important. Is that true? People kept telling me that it was important, and people kept reassuring me that any amount of effort I put into it was rewarding. And that got me past the bad moments when I thought, I cannot look for another photographer. It's just too many. How many of them did you find? Well, I started with none. And the book contains more than 1,400. So for a state with our demographics, a low population, relatively low income, that's not too bad. I expect it's at least twice as many people as Mississippi has. Why do you think Alabamians had so many photographers? We didn't, actually. We had a lot of photographers, but photography was basically a short-term activity in Alabama. Most of the photographers on my list were in business for less than three years. That's not much of a figure when you consider that people have to make an investment in equipment and materials, even if the equipment is secondhand. So we're talking about professional photographers, people who tried to make some of their income from it. My book started out with a list of professional photographers, people who ran commercial studios to make a living. But it broadened to include what I call serious amateurs, people who made photographs for pleasure, but who made them to high visual standards. High visual standards. What are you talking about there? I'm talking about people who were concerned with whether the picture cropped out people's heads or left their feet off, or whether the picture attempted to show the whole person, and whether or not the picture was well composed in the sense that whatever the view is has been considered as a subject of design, not simply just snapping the camera and moving on. There are photographers who have these standards, And because of that, their pictures are rewarding to see. Not every picture is wonderful, but overall you can look at their collection and some of the pictures just lift themselves off the floor and say, look at me, I'm really good. 
Where are you finding these collections of avocational photographers' pictures? They happen almost by accident. A lot of archives are beginning to collect albums and groups of photographs that were made by known amateurs, people that you can put a name to, and thus you can say, George Smith made these pictures of his daughter before her birthday in 1931. You can say that kind of thing because people have put names on the pictures and otherwise identified them for you. But some turn up by serendipity. I have given talks every year since 1998 for the Alabama Humanities Foundation, and most of those talks have involved photography in some way or another. People bring pictures to those programs. I couldn't stop them if I wanted to. And when they do, sometimes the pictures are just terrific. And if they are, I ask if I can come and see more. And then I do see more, and some of those people get filtered out onto my list of really fine photographers. Photography is an activity, but its quality depends on the person behind the lens. A camera is just an instrument. What the person does with the camera, accepting its limitations and its strong points, is what makes an interesting photograph. Have you seen a spread of visual culture so that Alabama photographers have grown with the medium? In one sense, that's true. When photography began, there were very, very few Daguerreans, as they were called, who were wandering Alabama based for a few weeks or months in a city and taking pictures. 25, 50 a year. As time passed and the demand for visual images, particularly portrait likenesses, as that spread, more photographers entered the field, even if they were only in it for a very few years. And they took photographs while they were moving around from river landing to courthouse town to university town. Wherever people congregated, you would find a photographer. As photography spread over the state and people got used to visual images, it's hard to believe this, but our newspapers used to be gray. They were black and white and no pictures mm -hmm. because our printing presses couldn't accommodate photographs and people weren't interested in having them in the paper anyway. So as that slowly began to change, uh, it did change the culture of photography. People began to accept photographs as a natural part of their lives. It's something they did, whether they went to a portrait studio, as most of them did for a very long time, or whether they started using a snapshot camera on their own, in their family or on their block. But until the 1950s, not every person had a camera at hand. Not every block had an individual living on it who had a camera. And the people who did have that kind of camera, plus the funds to buy film and have the pictures processed and printed, they were very welcome members of almost any social circle. You talked about having a list of photographers, mm -hmm. 1,400, in your book. Why is having that list important? Well, a lot of people associate collecting photographs and understanding them with their genealogies. Most people are terrifically good at translating the texts and documents into information that's pertinent to their relatives. But they're absolutely in the dark when it comes to looking at their photographs, and they can't tell one generation from another. 
If you have a photographer's name on a photograph or on a, the mount of a photograph, you can look it up in my index and discover where that photographer was working and when. And that way you have a chance of saying, well, this has to be grandmother. It can't be Aunt Susie because the photographer was dead by then. <laughs> you can use that kind of information. This is very useful for genealogists, for archivists and librarians, people who are interested in classifying images and putting them with the appropriate people that they belong to. And that only, of course, works as long as photography works. It goes back to the 1840s and 50s. Mm -hmm. And most people's photographic records don't even start until the 1880s or 90s, if they have any photographs at all. Someone in France carefully calculated that people in France, until the invention of the snapshot camera, had no more than 10 photographs in their houses. That's not very many pictures, but thank goodness, because I looked at 200,000 photographs as it was. I thought I was looking at a lot, but some families have a lot of photographs because they're visually oriented or because they're pack rats. It's hard to tell. Other people have very few photographs or none because their families never made the habit of wanting visual images in the first place. Do you think your work is going to spur further research? I think it is, and I think in some ways it already has. I've been talking about photographs in Alabama for 30 years. It has produced some changes in the photographic interests. When I started giving talks, for instance, at the Alabama Department of Archives and History, they didn't have anyone responsible for photographs. Now they have people responsible for photographs, for digitizing the images, for helping interpret the images, and they have well-trained people in their reference division who help people figure out what to do about their photographs. All of that is new news, and I can't say I'm solely responsible because the professional practices of archivists have changed as well, but there's been a general movement in this country and others that looking at photographs is important that looking at photographs can provide us the kinds of information that you can't get from a written document. And because of that, archivists have become interested, and librarians too, in the photographic culture. But the books about local photography are just beginning to come out. Alabama has the first, to my knowledge, narrative history of photography and a list published at the same time, published together. Most states don't have that kind of thing yet. A lot of states have lists, and the person who set out to make the list may have intended to do a book to go with the list as well, and then satisfied themselves that doing the list was ghastly enough that they didn't want to proceed. Uh, I know a lot of people like that. I collected photographers and photographs for many years until finally a very noted Alabama historian looked at me and said, quit collecting photographers, write the book. And I was intimidated enough by her to do it. I sat down at my computer and parsed out the chapters and started with the introduction and wrote my way to the end. The history of Alabama is a sort of broken history. It starts and stops with funny gaps in it the photographic record is also irregular. What it turned out was that it was hard to talk about a subject in a continuum. It was much easier to talk about 
the photographs that interested me and explain the histories of them, the people in them, what people thought of them then and what they've come to mean to people later on, and hope that that would stand for the hundreds of thousands of photographs for which we no longer have that information. Or it would jog people's memories so that that information would slowly get conjured up into their conscious brains and they would tell me about it. So it's a book about stories, stories about people, stories about sitters, stories about photographers. One reviewer of my book said, who can possibly not like a photographer who sold a joke with every photo? You have to find those people enduring. And this is a very positive book in many ways. It tells about the seamy side of Jim Crow, but it also points out that if it weren't for Jim Crow, we wouldn't have black photographers making a living in black parts of our cities. And we do have those people. James Byrd, for instance, in Birmingham, the first black photographer to have a studio in Alabama, worked for 23 years. Now, given the average three-year tenure of a photographer in Alabama, that is amazing, totally amazing. And I can't be enthusiastic enough about James and Bird because he made a breakthrough that was continued by other photographers. Did Mr. Bird make his living as a photographer? Yes, he did. He had his own studio. He had assistants who helped him in the business. And he had his studio in the most stylish building of black business in Birmingham. So he was well-equipped to wipe up the business of making photographs for all kinds of people. And what's really nice about him is that two of his photographs survive. So that's in itself impressive. And they're described as being by him on the label. He's wonderful. And there were other photographers who were inspired by people like James N. Bird, like P.H. Polk of Tuskegee Institute who worked from the time he started to take a photography class at Tuskegee Institute right until the time of his death. When he started taking photographs at Tuskegee, it was just after the photography division had been established. It was the first division in an Alabama institution of higher learning to offer a certificate or a degree in photography. And it produced some of the greatest photographers that Alabama and the Southeast have ever known. You obviously know a great deal, not only about photography, but also the photographers and the culture of photography. Does a reader have to have that kind of knowledge to understand your book? I don't think so. I've tried to keep the book as non-technical as possible. I was advised that I should put in a sentence or two when a new technology or a new wrinkle in photography occurred and that I should use ordinary language to do it. So for the most part, I've tried to do that. The other issue about photography and explaining about photography is to try to explain to people the roles that photographers had in the normal town or city in Alabama. Because Alabama was a poor state, average income was low relative to other states, we didn't have as many people who could afford photographs. People like P.H. Polk often took photographs of people that just interested them, their faces, their life stories, and he would take them for nothing or pay them a dollar sometimes to pose for him, and that gave him, in effect, the right to sell their work. 
There were no copyright laws protecting photographers' work until 1873. Photographers could take each other's work and print it again and try to sell it for money. There was no legal prohibition against doing that, and not much of a sense that that was wrong. One of the things that was just proliferating images. That's a pretty fascinating concept that is brought back up again in social media today. An image or a meme or something like that can be passed around without much attribution. That's not really legal. <laughs> uh, there are copyright laws today, and they protect the visual image. As to how much the copyright protection is observed, I can't deal with that. I try not to deal with any photograph that I can recognize as having been copied from someone else without permission. On the other hand, there is a doctrine that says two things. One, a photograph that's made before 1923 is in the public domain. It's out of copyright. People can use it. They can spread it all over the Internet. They can claim it's their own if they want to. There's a moral issue there, but there's not a legal issue. The second claim is what's called the fair use doctrine. Fair use holds that if a photograph has been published, it may be used again by someone else without asking for permission. A lot of times that fair use, though, is hitched to, but you must give the photographer credit. And that's the part I'm very supportive of because I think photographers like poets or writers of different kinds are entitled to own their own work. And passing them around seems to me morally slippery, not simply illegal, but slippery. And I don't want to get on that slippery slope, so I try to stay off it. What were some of the changes in how professional photographers conducted their business? If they're having to make a living at it or even uh, having an income, right. Things changed over time. Yes. Well, the first photographs, this, what are called the case photographs, the one-of-a-kinds, they could be made by a single person. A person could set up the sitter, fix the, adjust the lighting through curtains in the windows or whatever, then dash back to the, his dark room to coat the metal plate that he was going to take the picture on, then bring it back to the posing room put it in the camera, and take the picture while it was still in a wet condition. Then the person would run back to the dark room, process the plate, and then sell it to the patron. That could be done with a little trouble by a single individual. But if you're talking about negative photography, where you generate a negative and then you make prints from it, which was the most familiar type of photography until digital surpassed it, you really need a second pair of hands, not just to do the setup, but to do the printing, to do the hand coloring if it's necessary, to do the trimming. There were myriad extra tasks because it's really a two-phase operation. Photographers who had families would press the family into helping. Wives, uh, daughters, sisters, brothers, children of all kinds, relatives. But a photographer who didn't have a family had to hire that work and had to pay for it. And what that meant was it cut into their profits. So that's the condition with negative-based photography. You need an extra person, and that really changed the way photographers worked. If you didn't have a family, what you normally did was enter into an association with an assistant 
or with another photographer to share the work and share the money. Most of those associations quit being associated the minute money was a problem. The minute they ran into a shortage of clients, that was the end of that relationship. Photography also changed in the 19th century from galleries to studios. In the 19th century, till about 1880, photographers worked in galleries. The word gallery was meant to conjure up the great picture galleries of Europe, like the Uffizi or the Royal Museums of London, at grand places that enhanced the social status of the sitter, even if you just went up to ask how much a picture would cost. The word studio begins to replace that word gallery in the late 19th century, and a studio was a place where a photographer actually did work. Like a painter painting a picture in a studio, a photographer took a picture in the studio. It was not thought of as a different kind of thing, but with it, the attitude toward the photographer changed. The photographer was no longer displaying likenesses that had just appeared miraculously in his gallery. He was actually making the picture in front of people. And that changed people's minds about photography. I believe that it helped lead to snapshot photography where the person with the camera is in charge. That person is in a studio, whether it's indoors or outdoors, taking pictures, and people can see the picture being taken. They can comment on it. It made photography more personal, and it made photography more individual. Do you have a photographer that might be your favorite? You've talked about three or four of them, or do you think one is exceptionally important and you want to highlight him or her? Well, I think that the one I'm working on right now is the most important. And tomorrow it will be different, a different person, and it will be equally important. But the two that come to mind as the most important are the ones that have the most documentation, because it's my belief that pictures don't live without words. And if you don't have documentation of an image, it ends up on eBay. And nobody knows from then on where it came from, who enjoyed it, whose mother it is. You don't know those things. But I'm working right now on a book on Birmingham's first resident photographer, whose name was Alan Christopher Oxford. He came to Birmingham just in time for the National Cholera Epidemic of 1873 and the National Recession. Perfect timing. His daughter died of cholera during the recession. His wife wrote very moving letters about that death to her sister in Marengo County. Moreover, he was one of Birmingham's first elected city aldermen, and so there are records of that activity. And when he left photography, he moved into real estate, and there are lots of real estate transactions that mention him. So he's very well known, not to most people, but I've collected this material and know there's information about him, plus which he was a fabulous photographer. He took the first photograph I have ever seen of a cat rearing on its hind legs. And if you've ever tried to get a cat to do anything, it's very difficult. Cats are very independent creatures. So that's what my book is going to be about. I'm also very interested in our second state geologist, Eugene Allen Smith. He took photographs for the geological survey from the year 1885 when he acquired a camera for the survey up until about 1910. 
He was the first scientific photographer in Alabama. Because he took most of his pictures on expeditions to study Alabama's geology and the changes it made in our landscape, his field notes that go along with the photograph are a wonderland of being able to say, this is why he took that picture. This is when he took it. This is what he was interested in in a general way. So that, again, I know a lot of information about him. It's different from the information I know about Mr. Oxford, but it's nonetheless interesting. And I'd like to do a monograph on his photographs. What did you learn writing this book that you didn't expect you'd learn? I'm not sure I expected such terrific pictures. I had thought that I might find some because I had done an exhibition of Alabama landscape photographs, and that had exposed me to the idea of some wonderful images, the kind of image that I would run out of a burning building with. And that became my criterion in looking for photographs for this much bigger project. But I'm still astonished that I can go into an archive or a library and never, ever leave without finding some photographs that I would like to look at a second time. Now, you've told us a lot about your book, and many of us in the state know who you are, but there are probably people, Francis, who don't know much about your background. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I was born and brought up in Birmingham, Alabama. I went to Birmingham Southern College. I was 16 when I started to college, and my parents said, when you're 18, you can go anywhere you want. By the time I was 18, I didn't want to go somewhere else. I was having a wonderful time at Southern learning English literature, which I thought was going to be my subject. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't. I, I'm overeducated in the sense that I'm ABD, all but dissertation in English literature, and worse than that, medieval English literature. When I realized, however, that I was going to have to grade a lot of papers and grammar was going to be part of what I graded, I thought, I can't do this. So I left school, got a job at the National Gallery of Art. They needed someone who could write a lot and quickly. And I had certainly learned how to do that, and they promised me no grading papers. So I worked at the National Gallery for four years, and it became a touchstone of quality, of visual quality, no matter what the period, what the style of art or who the artist was. Then I met and married a person who just returned from the U.S. Navy from his four years of military service, David Robb, and he was in the museum business. He was working for Paul Mellon, the great collector. We were married and then went to Yale together. And after Yale, we had various experiences and ended up in Fort Worth, Texas. I had taught a little bit already in universities and colleges, but in Fort Worth I found the ideal combination teaching at two universities, one of them humanities and art history, and the other one specialized disciplines within art history, like the history of jewelry and small metals, or the history of prints, or the history of clothing. Now, of those, the history of clothing became very useful in doing history of photography. But all of those disciplines taught me how to do research quickly and to master a subject well enough that I knew what questions I needed to ask.
I am a person of insatiable curiosity who reads murder mysteries for fun, and I think I have learned as much in figuring out who done it as I have learned in educational courses. Everything I touch could possibly be useful to me in understanding a photograph. I don't know what's going to come down the pike. The best thing I can do is learn how to learn. And so that's really my checkered career. You have also been instrumental in a bunch of projects across the state, certainly in the last 30 years. And I'd like you to talk about some of your bigger projects. My career as a specialist in historic photography began thanks to the Alabama Humanities Foundation. I was approached by the then director of the foundation, Bob Stewart, who asked if I could help them with an exemplary grant that the NEH was then giving out, where states would compete with each other to present the most innovative and interesting type of grant they could imagine. So he asked me if I could do an exhibition of Alabama photographs from beginning to end, all subjects. And I said, no, there's nowhere near enough money in the grant to pay for something like that, besides which the Alabama Decorative Arts Survey is planning to do something just like what you're describing, and they will need far more money than that, and they're much more capable than you are of raising it. So we ended up with me saying, well, I could probably do landscape photographs for one focused exhibition, and they decided to couple that with some Alabama readings of literature that involved landscape and people's attitudes towards place, which is a wonderful idea, and they presented these programs at some public libraries. So I did this exhibition, and I think the NEH funded it because, as they said, they had never before funded an exhibition in this kind of grant because they didn't have any idea what the cost ratio was per viewer. And I thought, that's ridiculous. You take the amount of money you've got for the grant, divide it by the number of people you've had in the building looking at the show, and then you know what it costs per person. Well, to do an exhibition back then cost about 35 cents a person, whereas to do a reading program cost a couple of hundred dollars a person. Well, the NEH was very moved by that. I'm not sure exactly why, because I don't think it's an exact equation. That started me off. Pretty soon I had people sitting in my living room saying, I need somebody to interpret 1950s Gadsden. Can you do that? And I would say, yes, of course, if I have access to the Gadsden newspapers. It just mushroomed. Suddenly I had a new career. I traveled about Alabama. The show itself Alabama Landscape Photographs was a great success. It traveled to four museums, and the project of which it was a part won the 1990 Schwartz Prize for the most imaginative exemplary grant. So that was very reassuring and was a nice credential. I worked also on the Alabama Decorative Arts Survey show, which was called Made in Alabama. It traveled the state, made a lot of friends for the museums, and had a lot of really, really wonderful quilts and pottery and all kinds of things in it. I think I was asked to do that show because most of the things that were shown were made by white artisans, not black. The committee that was forming the exhibition, the curators, were concerned about having not enough black representation, 
and they thought that they could find it in photography. Well, after a point, they could. After James and Bird, there was no problem tracking black photographers and also black sitters as our economy improved in the 1880s and 90s. There were more black people who could afford photographs, and so there was more to look at. I set out, though, not to be color-specific. I set out to find photographers and find interesting photographs, regardless of the ethnic identity of the sitters or the makers. And I hope I succeeded. I certainly did try. That show opened to my black friends a world of possibilities that their own photographs were worth looking at and worth having me look at and go ooh and ah, which I'm very good at doing. Those two shows were really important. I guess the most important ones that I did, but I've also worked on shows on the Alabama farmhouse. My husband and I collected and disseminated materials on Carl Elliott, a lot of it photographic, to make his house into a house museum. And of course, you have to have photographs to show people what Mr. Elliott looked like and to show you, give you some idea of what he did. I also did a show on Eugene Allen Smith, the state geologist, on the best of his photographs. And the best are world-class in quality. Smith studied art at a school in Philadelphia, a free school for bright kids. His classmate was Thomas Cooperthwaite Aikens, the great American realist painter. When I look at Smith's pictures and I look at Aikens's pictures, I see strong similarities in their views of the natural world and the importance of rendering it so that other people can appreciate it. I did that show out of a fondness for Dr. Smith's pictures. They are truly world-class and deserve to be seen more than they're seen now, but that will take a while. That will take publication of more books. That will take other scholars being interested. And I have an interesting story about one of those scholars. Andrew Nelson was a graduate student at the University of Maryland when he was looking at some photographs at the Birmingham Public Library. Those photographs interested him. He took a trip to the county that they were suspected of being made in. Nobody knew who had taken them or where. But there were some ideas that they were made in west-central Alabama. So he went over to Fayette County to see what he could find. And what he found was the house the photographers had lived in. And it was a family of photographers named Shackelford. And whoever picked up the camera took the picture. They also ran a sort of boarding house for black people to stay in when they were traveling through the county. So they had a lot of people who posed for photographs there. The family made pictures for 20 years or so, varying in quality from someone who could just barely use the camera to very skillful, very artful things, but they give us a view of life in a community where they took pictures of both black people and white people because there was no other photographer around. People want images now. Since the turn of the century, they have wanted visual images. Whether the images are awful or really good, apparent likeness is not the issue. Having a picture of granddaddy is what's it's important. Andrew Nelson has gone on to get his PhD. He's now teaching school in Alabama. Out of preference, he's teaching high school students. And I think it's that generation that's going to produce the people who really follow me. 
I think that's pretty insightful. Andrew gave us a podcast in 2013. Yes, I've heard it. Heard it. It's wonderful. Yeah, he did a really good job. He was very He's, excited about the Shackelford photographs. It was a very exciting project, and when he was able to meet some of the Shackelfords, it made the project come to life with him. And that's the same as for me. I met a man named A.C. Keeley, who was a photographer in Birmingham until the 1990s. I met him when he had retired. And I also met Dreyfus Hightower, who's from Barber County, long years after he retired. Both of those people had an enthusiasm for what they did that was just infectious. I couldn't help but think that they were doing what they wanted to do and what they could do best for people who appreciated what they did. When I took Mr. Keeley my eighth grade school picture taken on the steps of Central Park Grammar School, we're all lined up in rows, I said, do you remember taking this picture? And he laughed, and he said, no, of course not. I took so many of these. He said, but when I was taking pictures of members of the military during World War II, he said, I learned how to make sure that every face was visible and that every expression was smiling. And I thought, that's exactly what you want in a school picture, isn't it? So my book is full of things like school pictures, not just white politicians, stern guys with gray hair and beards, but photographs that come from all kinds of directions, from Christmas cards to postcards to industrial photographs. All of that visual information that ended up being photographed, all of that was grist for my mill. And I'm thrilled that I was ambitious enough at the beginning to look for examples of every kind of photograph that I could discover rather than concentrate on portraits or landscapes or something like that. If you had any bullet point advice to give to someone who might follow in your footsteps, go down this trail that you have <laughs> begun to blaze, what would you tell them? Well, first of all, I'd tell them to look at a lot of photographs. Go to an archive like Wiregrass Archive and say, I just am here to look and just see what you see. Ruminate on it while you're looking. Think about, is this a really good picture? Is this one better than the one I looked at a few minutes ago? Or is it really just peripheral to what I think turns me on? Another thing that's important is looking at photographs by the great people of photography. In America, that would be the FSA photographers like Walker Evans and Arthur Rothstein, people who took wonderful pictures because they thought hard about the process of taking pictures. Then I would say, you need to know something about the technologies of photography so you would know what the givens were, what possibilities a certain technique offered a photographer, and what limitations it demanded of them, like not being able to take a picture out of doors at night. That's relatively new. You can't fault a photographer because he didn't take a picture of the robbers escaping out of the bank because his camera just wouldn't do that. So those are important things to do. But I think most of all, if a person is interested in following in my footsteps, they have to love looking at photographs. They have to really love it and be anxious to talk to people's grandmothers who want to tell you their family history while you're looking through the album, because you're going to get some nuggets out of that that are going to make the whole process worthwhile.
but as my husband says make friends with your archivist so that you have access to whatever they've turned up and i learned early on to ask archivists and other people to show me what they are interested in in the photographic line because they're familiar with their own collections they know what they like and oftentimes asking them to tell me what they would run out of the burning building with is pay dirt is there anything else you'd like to tell us I'd like to tell you that the book that I wrote weighs more than my first child weighed when he was born. So it's a heavy book to carry around, but that shouldn't deter you. I'd like to tell people that they don't have to read the footnotes, that they can just read the text and look at the footnote numbers and say, well, she's got a citation for this. She must have found a document that says this. I think that it's useful not to read footnotes until you really want to know where a comment or a remark came from. Other than that, I think people should not drop it on their foot. They may end up with a cast. <laughs> with that, thank you very much, Francis Robb, author of Shot in Alabama, A History of Photography, 1839-41, to 41, and A List of Photographers, published by University of Alabama Press in 2016. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.